This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. We have a very special episode today in store for you. I'm interviewing the real Dr. Freilich, aka my dad, Richard Freilich. So uh, he is uh, a hospitalist, works at Sunnybrook on the oncology floor, although recently he's become reinvolved with public health in the setting of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. So, uh, Dad, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Mike. It's so great to be here. Yeah, that's right. It's a sort of first time guest on the show. So welcome. So why don't you sort of start off by letting the listeners know a little bit about you, your medical training, and eventually, of course, we will get to uh, COVID-19. Well, thanks, Mike. So really, I left high school. I was 17 years old and I entered medical school at U of T went through the six-year program, and I qualified in 1972 as a physician. All right. So uh, how much has medicine changed is probably the first question I'll ask you compared to maybe 1973 when you're one year out of med school. Well, it, it's really changed a lot. There's no doubt. I mean, there's been such a, a whole growth and progress in the area of technology there have, of course, been some diseases that have come along uh, since 1973. And, you know, one of those was the emergence of AIDS in 1981, which had a, a real changing effect, I would say, on my practice. For sure. And, and we're going to talk more about that very soon. Now, just let our listeners know. So you graduated med school in 1972. And then what happened next? Did you go into residency or what did things look like? So I did uh, what was at that time called a, a rotating internship at Toronto East General Hospital, uh, now Michael Guerin Hospital. And I did you know, just a wide range of things because my plan was to become a family doctor. So that when I finished that year, that's what I started to do was practice family medicine. Gotcha. And then thereafter, how did you eventually get involved with uh, public health and, and the training that you pursued through, I don't think it was called public health back then, but you can let us know what it was called. Sure. So by the point of 1980, uh, I had realized that I wanted to do specialty training. I know I was influenced because my mother was a public health nurse for many years in East York and Leaside where I was growing up. And so I decided uh, I I met uh, the medical officer of health who was in the area where she was working at the time, and he was quite an inspiration to me. So I signed up for the four-year fellowship program beginning in July 1980. Gotcha. And who was that uh, medical officer of health? Do you remember? Yeah, that was uh, David Korn. At that point, he was the medical officer in the Simcoe County Health Unit, where my mother was working. Later on, he went on to become the chief MOH in the province. And at another point, he was the CEO of the Donwood Institute, where I also pursued some of my public health career. Okay, so what did those four years of training uh, sort of look like? Well, the first year and a half, I did a master's degree. No thesis like uh, you had to do, but lots of coursework and lots of papers to write. And it was a real eye-opener because it was you were learning about what was going on in the broader healthcare system. But there was, to a certain extent, there was a type of doctor bashing that went on because we as physicians are not always the, um, you know, we think we're kind of in charge, but really there's a lot of other people who contribute to healthcare 
And believe me, you really started to learn that in the area of like behavioral science. You would learn that as a community medicine uh, resident. Okay. And then following the, uh, what sounds like uh, was a lot of coursework, what did the sort of final two years of the program uh, look like? So what you would do would be these placements. And I mean, true story, I was an R3 when I was hired by Toronto Public Health. I had done a three-month placement with them and uh, they were recruiting for a new associate medical officer of health. So by December 1982, as an R3, I was hired by the Toronto Public Health Department. Okay, so unlike, you know, sort of today when you could be an R8 and still not have a job, uh, somehow you managed to get a job as an R3. Yeah, don't know how it happened, but you know, the interview, there were six people around the table. I've never had an interview before or since where there were that number of people, but they were community people, they were public health specialists, and so it was a unique experience, I'll tell you. But somehow I had what they wanted, so I got hired to work in the downtown area of Toronto as the Associate Medical Officer of Health. Okay, so um, that would bring us probably to what, like the early 1980s now we're at? Yeah, so we're December 1982 that I'm appointed, and then particularly there was that big problem of AIDS happening, and by early 1983, the Medical Officer of Health, uh, Dr. Sandy McPherson, really within about six weeks of my hire, he talked with me about the fact that, you know, we as a public health department have to do something about this this big problem of AIDS in the Toronto and, and wider community. So he asked me to prepare a report for him to the Board of Health. Okay. So uh, then sort of take our listeners to kind of 1983, uh, when you were starting off, what was known about HIV AIDS? What wasn't known? And what were you working on? Well, you know, it was a, a significant emerging problem with, you know, really young gay men who were becoming very sick with pneumocystis carini pneumonia, as we called it then, and now it's PJP, and also with Kaposi's sarcoma. So this was, you know, the reports out of major U.S. centers, and it was true in Toronto as well. So really, as far as that goes, my job was to develop a reporting system because, you know, there was a lot of anti-gay sentiment in the community. There was a lot of fear, and we had to have a reporting system where I, as the medical officer, would know new cases that were developing and be able to add to the Toronto and provincial and national database. But I also would get updates, of course, when some would die. And so we had to do that in a confidential way. And basically, I was the person that the Toronto specialists would call and family physicians as well when they had you know, a new case of AIDS. And I would kind of record and document that information. Okay. And, you know, pardon my uh, utter and total ignorance but by that point in time, so in 1983, was the diagnosis being made based on viral testing or was the diagnosis being made on, you know, uh, clinical symptoms and diseases that defined AIDS? That's right. I mean, in, in similar terminology to what we use in public health, it was a surveillance case definition. So broadly, it included a wide range of diseases, two of which were KS, Kaposi's sarcoma, and the other PCP, but other aspects as well. And so um, it, it was that that would be reported. 
the actual blood test, the HIV antibody test, did not come into play until really uh, that was being kind of put out there and available in about October 1985. Okay. And when you were seeing people with HIV AIDS in the, you know, I guess early and mid-1980s, what was known about the transmission? And was this a scenario like we're seeing now where you are, you know, glove, gown and mask, uh, etc.? Yeah, what was that like? Yes. So, of course, the truth is that I'm sitting in a public health office receiving information. At that point, I wasn't on the front line. But of course, some of them were men who were uh, sick with pneumonia. So there would have been respiratory isolation precautions with that. The whole fear um, in the community about blood, because, you know, people were also getting AIDS from blood transfusions. And that was a a whole other serious matter uh, as to the safety of our Canadian blood supply. Uh, but there there was definitely, you know, do we need to wear gloves if we go into the household of someone who has AIDS? I mean, what if we, are, we touch their blood? Or, you know, can people kiss one another if one person has AIDS? I mean, what's the risk through kissing that someone's going to, you know, uh, pick up this virus? So there were different kind of twists and turns about some of the level of fear about the the disease. Okay. And I probably should have asked this earlier, but just a ballpark, do you know when the first case of AIDS was diagnosed in Toronto? When was that in the 1980s? Even just a ballpark? Uh, Ballpark, I would say it was in 1982, Mike. Um, I put in this reporting system really by about March or so of uh, 1983. And, you know, I was getting, you know, some of the backlog of uh, of earlier diagnosed cases. Uh, So just from memory, I I would say in 82. Okay. And then what degree of contact tracing was going on at that point in time when very little was known about the virus, of course, and modes of transmission? Well, really, there wasn't any type of contact tracing. I'll I'll give one exception to that. But the general approach that Toronto Public Health was taking was that we had some real expert individuals who worked on health education. So what was the messaging that had to go out about safer sex? And one of the first completed projects was a poster with uh, a silhouette image of what you would interpret as a group of men sitting at a bar. And it was the messaging around, you know, the need to pay attention to safer sex practice you know, people are meeting in a bar, they're going home together, you know, there needs to be and the messaging around uh, use of condoms and safer sex. Okay. But I guess, initially, was there contact tracing? I mean, how did you know that the mode of transmission was what we know to be today? Yeah, so that was coming out of research that was going on in the U.S., And at the University of Toronto, there was a very important uh, research study that was looking at, uh, it was a follow-up study really as a cohort design led by Dr. Randy Coates and by Dr. Colin Siskolny from, uh, he was out west in, uh, I think, in Edmonton, that was looking at men who were sexual contacts of men with what was termed at the time a sort of a, a precursor to AIDS or actual AIDS. And so they were able to recruit this cohort and follow them over time 
And I suppose they then generated incidence data on the development of new cases of AIDS. Okay. And what sort of parallels do you see between the COVID-19 pandemic and when it first sort of hit compared to, you know, HIV AIDS when it first came onto the scene in the early 1980s? Well, really, I consider that COVID-19 is on an even broader scale because of the whole meaning of pandemic that it's presented as such a significant problem with a highly contagious virus that with person-to-person contact, the ease with which COVID-19 seems to transmit. AIDS was happening in, you know, perhaps a more select group of individuals, but nonetheless, the nature of viruses that can, you know, be picked up by someone else, you, you have some pretty serious consequences, really in both, because with COVID-19, as you are so aware as a frontline clinician on this, that, you know, the risk of death, the risk of uh, levels of uh, ICU care that are required for uh, such patients. Okay. Um, Of course, there wasn't a lockdown, or I guess we never truly went into a lockdown, but really, you know, sort of time stood still in the sense that people weren't going to work and people still aren't going to work and staying indoors, limiting interactions with people outside of what's now called the social bubble. Were there any similar recommendations that had gone into place uh, in the early 1980s? I wouldn't say so in a parallel way. You know, I think it was really, uh, though, what could an individual do who had, you know, risk behavior that they could pick up AIDS? And, and that was really around, you have to change your sexual practice. You have to take precautions. And it wasn't just up to Toronto Public Health. I mean, the AIDS Committee of Toronto did tremendous amount of work. The PWA Foundation in Toronto you know, working more closely in the communities they served, they they were getting that message out and they were, you know, talking to people about reducing their risk. And Mike, I should say, because I know you asked about contact tracing, I was kind of leaving the AIDS scene. Uh, I was transitioning about the year you were born in 1986 because I was going to a different health area. But there was a, a model that was being developed then because we had the HIV test about doing contact tracing, but I wasn't directly involved in really, you know, the design and the implementation of that. Gotcha. So um, I guess as you were sort of recording and accruing the data related to the new cases of AIDS, uh, of course, you know, you didn't have the luxury of a laptop computer or Excel or R or any sort of, you know, fancy means of collating and collecting the data. So what was this, uh, pen and paper or Morse code? What was going on those days? Yeah, so I had a piece of paper, which I kept a chronological order. I, I, of course, locked it away in my desk at night at work. But the physicians who contacted me with new cases, they weren't telling me names. They were giving me initials. So it was at least coded in that sort of way. I received the information And then that information, I would, we had a reporting requirement as a local health unit to provide that information to our provincial uh, public health colleagues, which is something that I did. And two questions. The first, what did public health do with those data? Well, it was really taking stock. You know, it was knowing the extent of the epidemic as it was unfolding. 
And I know that the numbers were being tracked across Canada and in the way it was an impetus, like what can be done. And the the doing was to work on prevention. And then it was also within the whole clinical specialty of infectious diseases, there were colleagues who I got to know in those early years who were, again, on the front line at the major teaching hospitals who were looking into treatment options. And you know, through that kind of endeavor, eventually a notable drug like AZT was found. So, and um, so in the, you know, around 1986 is when you stopped doing this work. So why did you stop doing this work? And I guess was the next step for you at the Wellesley sort of, I guess, on the front line, if you will, looking after people with HIV AIDS? Well, so by 86, and then really I left Toronto Public Health in 87 and I was recruited to be the director of medical services at the Donwood Institute, which was a you know a Toronto-based but a national resource for treatment of drug and alcohol addiction. <clears throat> so I did that work, uh, and it was David Korn who was at that point the CEO. He recruited me. He also recruited your mom because actually he hired her first. She was the media consultant, and she worked part time. And at that point, she was pregnant with your younger brother, James. So she was doing some part-time work. And then once David had hired her, he hired me. So Gotcha. Okay. So, you know, the family tree will save for another episode. I don't know how many listeners really care about that succession, but it's interesting for me to hear. And then can you talk about your work um, at the Wellesley, caring for people with HIV AIDS? Sure, because the Wellesley was an important stop for me. So by 92, I decided that really... My calling was to look after people with uh, HIV AIDS. So I left the Dawnwood. I worked at uh, UHN for uh, a couple of years. And then in 95, I joined the family practice unit at uh, the Wellesley Health Center. And there the whole idea was where there was a model developed around doing more teaching and outreach to primary care physicians. So I did some of that. And I also, not to keep bringing in the family, but because we had a summer holiday up in Thunder Bay in, what, about 1997, I was asked to speak to the AIDS Committee of Thunder Bay because your Aunt Anne lives up in Thunder Bay. And her family doctor realized that, oh, I was a specialist as well as doing this primary care work. So I was hired through the Northern Underservice Program to do a consulting practice up in Thunder Bay like every six to eight weeks. So I, I ran a clinic up there over the next two and a half years. Okay, that's right. And so maybe that's why I'm drawn to Sault Ste. Marie. It's something uh, genetic, I suppose. So, you know, let's spend just a couple minutes about what it was like caring for people with AIDS. I guess now we're in the early to mid-90s. That's right. I mean, in 92, when I started doing this work, I worked with an immunologist at UHN, saw some very fascinating types of treatments that were being explored. And again, AZT, DDI, and the drug DDC were on the market then. But, you know, the People were still dying um, because those drugs would run out in terms of their effectiveness and in, in terms of controlling the viral load uh, and so on. But in the mid-90s, that's when the additional drugs like the protease inhibitors were marketed and released. And so the mid-90s was a game changer and people literally stopped dying. And then when did you stop doing the clinical work? with people with uh, HIV AIDS and, and why did you stop that work? 
So that was in the very late 90s. Um, working at the Wellesley, there were some rough, tough uh, customers there. I, I looked after, well, some were drug addicted, some were in jail and would come into the office in their orange outfits and they'd be a accompanied by guards and uh, they had HIV AIDS. I looked after them. You know, there was an incident in about 98 where I was uh, punched in the face by a drug seeker. And I think between the trauma of that and some comments from my sons about, dad, you need to find a new job. So then I started looking around. So I made a change. Gotcha. I didn't I didn't remember that. I, I did remember when we went to see Patch Adams when I was probably, I don't know, five or six or something like that. And then I decided to go talk to a homeless man on the street. Uh, and it turned out that that homeless man was um, was one of your patients. He was. Yeah. So, you know, we're walking away from the theater. Where is Mike? And Mike was uh, way behind us talking to that the fellow and uh, and really they were having a good talk. And then I realized who the person was. So we, we talked a little more. But uh, yeah, we we went looking for our son, Mike. There you go. Um, so now we're going to fast forward a little bit. Obviously, thereafter, you worked at um, Sunnybrook Hospital and continue to work at um, Sunnybrook as a, a hospitalist. You sort of, as most doctors do, did a fake retirement and that you retired, but still worked thereafter. And then COVID-19 hit. You know, I guess it would have been sort of January and in, in Toronto later than that. So why don't you talk a little bit about the impact of that and your sort of decision making process about working? Yeah, you bet. So I was, you know, winding down and really when not doing as much work at Sunnybrook. And so when COVID hit the scene uh, and, you know, the first case was there in late January, you know, I'm a 71 year old physician and, you know, I'm not planning to do a lot of work in this calendar year at Sunnybrook. I, I wanted to really cut it down. Then, though, I mean, with the whole kind of lockdown that started to take place in March, you know, Sunnybrook deemed that physicians over the age of 70 did not have to be on the front line. And so that was honestly fine by me because I, I felt like, you know, I'd worked through SARS and I, I, I've had my share of experiences through delivering healthcare. So, okay, I'm going to take a back seat. And then, you know, I was reading so much about COVID-19 and I think somebody asked me a question about contact tracing, as, as I sort of remember, a generic question. But I decided that I'm going to reach out to Toronto Public Health and see if there's something that I can do. All right. And yeah, and you know, now it's interesting. My memory of it is that you still wanted to go to work at Sunnybrook, but I feel like it was... Uh you know, mom and I and John and Jamie that told you, nope, you're sitting this one out. So anyway, so you reached out to Toronto Public Health. And uh, do you want to talk a, a little bit more about what that led to? Yes. Yeah, so um, that led into the fact that the department was looking for physicians who had a public health background to oversee and support the medical students from the University of Toronto, who were in fact as volunteers, they were involved in the case and contact management program that Toronto Public Health had put in place. Okay. Um, so the case and contact management, is that 
sort of the new name for contact tracing? Uh, in part. I mean, I, I think the, the first part of all this, of course, is when someone has a lab test positive or has clinical symptoms that even without the results of lab testing that makes them a probable case, that there is some active public health work that goes on to interview that individual as the case. And from that, the identification of who are their contacts, particularly when you look at the time period of communicability, when a case of, of COVID-19 could be, in fact, passing the virus to those close to them and around them. All right. So then, so walk us through then, uh, let's say today a patient is newly diagnosed with COVID-19. How would that information then sort of get to you and what are the next steps? So, you know, based on the, the kind of provincial public health guidance, there is a, a detailed interview that happens for a new case of COVID-19. And, you know, that's really as a way to understand how and why and when this person, you know, got sick and, you know, how they would have contracted the virus and then what sort of effect it was having on them in terms of how sick were they. Also, though, the idea that you, you know, nature of this virus uh, kind of parallel to influenza A, I mean, you really want to have an idea of who are the close contacts and what kind of risk are they under and, you know, what do you do about isolating them and, and following them. So, you know, the investigation leads to an identification of these contacts and then you get in touch with them to find out just what their contact, uh, what that was like, and you have to, you know, give them proper advice. Okay. So, you know, maybe some people don't have a lot of contacts, but what happens when maybe somebody who has COVID-19 is somebody with a lot of very close contacts? So you interview the person with COVID-19, and then what gets done with all of the people that might have had close contact with that individual? So they're identified in that kind of telephone interaction, and then public health turns around to contact those individuals and find out how they are and establish, you know, the self-isolation that will be required if they are a close contact, what's also called someone with a high-risk exposure to the index case. So what they have to do about self-isolation. And then the, the public health unit will keep in contact with those contact individuals to see over the next 14 days, how are they doing and is their health changing? Okay. Um, and what is a high-risk exposure? Well, if we think in the household setting where there has been a, a case of COVID-19 and there weren't any type of PPE precautions in place, then a symptomatic index case in a household exposes those who are living in that house to that the virus. And so you have that type of an example. You also have, of course, in community settings, like, you know, where people have gathered for some family event, even though there were lockdown phenomena in place, that people could have been exposing to a somewhat wider circle of family members, or there's a workplace. So uh, people, essential services were still going on, and a lot of that was in non-healthcare settings. So you have individuals in a workplace who are exposed to this individual with COVID-19. Okay. So if you have a high-risk exposure, can't we just keep it simple and say, go get tested? 
Well, it wouldn't be enough, though, because if you've had a high-risk exposure, you know, it's so important that that person has self-isolation so that there's a very strict limit of not then continuing to expose other people, as you know, with that reproduction number and how you want to control this, it, it's about isolating that individual. The role of testing is very relevant. I mean, someone who is a contact, if they are developing symptoms, that's important to test. Uh, even if they don't have symptoms, but it was a high-risk exposure, it would be very important for them to be tested. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And then what happens if people just ignore the advice to self-isolate? We're seeing some really unfortunate things going on in the U.S. where they're actually having COVID parties. And the competition is who can get COVID first at the party, which is, yeah, well, this will be listened to by a lot of people. So I'll just say, you know, this that's not the right thing to do. That's for sure. So what power do you guys have? to prevent somebody who's at a high-risk exposure from hosting a COVID party or from, you know, just not obeying the rules of self-isolation? Well, I, you know, I guess the framing of this is that there is, you know, both a provincial order and there are, in local jurisdictions, there are orders uh, under the Health Protection and Promotion Act that require individuals to behave in a certain way. And so, Ultimately, the best influence that public health staff have is on helping people understand what they have to do and the persuasion that this is what they really need to do. Certainly, if necessary, there are ways that the public health order can be enforced that, you know, in, in a way to do that. But most often, it's trying to really work with the individual as you're following them over that 14-day period. Uh, you're checking in to find out what are they doing, and you want to know that they are complying with this requirement. Okay, but there's no like uh, public health police that you can call to, you know, have a a more direct influence on what they're doing. Uh, no, not not in those kind of words. Okay, fair enough. So we'll wrap up shortly, uh, but just give us a sense: how much work does it take? When one new case of COVID has been diagnosed, how much work and time and hours then go into the process thereafter to understand exposure, et cetera? That's a very important question, Mike, because as I learned with the medical volunteers, they were, with the cases that they were asked to investigate, they were spending well over an hour just on the first day where they were contacting and talking with the individual and compiling the information and collecting it that they had to get. But then they're going to follow up with the case over the period that that person is isolated. They've got the contacts, they're speaking to them. So to try to quantify it, I mean, really, when you interview a case, it's over an hour initially. When you interview contacts, depending on the complexity, that could be a, a similar uh, amount of time. It's very time intensive, um, this kind of work. And, you know, with the great number of cases that uh, you can see that there's a lot of people needed to do this work. For sure. Yeah, that, that definitely is now crystal clear to me. That's for sure. So what do you think in terms of uh, next steps 
What's your prediction on what's going to happen with COVID-19 from a public health standpoint? It seems like right now things are pretty good in downtown Toronto and most of the province, but certainly there's, you know, continuing to be outbreaks. Uh, should that be of migrant farm workers, plants? Uh, what do you think is going to happen over the coming weeks or months? Well, as the elder public health person, not perhaps as close to some of the prediction sort of models that exist, but but I realize that there are some important researchers around the world who have you know, models of what this next wave of COVID-19 could look like, and that this looks like a disease that's going to go on for the next year and a half or, or longer. There is the importance of uh, vaccine development and having that in place. But, but as you can sort of predict, so important that there is going to be this planning about getting schools back in September. And, uh, you know, how's that going to look? I mean, what's going to happen? I mean, we're, there's going to have to be a lot of attention to the planning of that and, and being ready for the fact of when COVID-19 strikes, um, it's, you know, what public health will be doing about it. Yeah. And I wasn't sure at first, when you first started answering the question, if you were going to give me the old adage of a good historian knows not to predict the future or something like that. It's it's probably more eloquent than than what I put it at. But yeah, that I mean that sounds reasonable. I, I mean I've certainly just come to terms with the fact that it is so hard to predict what is going to happen. And I love numbers and I love models, but they have very big time limitations. And you know, reflecting back on what you said related to um, HIV/AIDS. The rate of new information that is accumulating is clearly exponential compared to what probably happened in the 1980s, whereas, you know, maybe a week or two after the public was aware of this virus, we knew the genetic sequence uh, immediately thereafter. We could test as opposed to HIV AIDS when many years went by. And, you know, you sort of talked about that game changer moment in the mid 1990s, you know. 13 some odd years following the first case in Toronto when there was treatment, effective treatment. Uh, I'm not sure if we've had our game changer moment per se, but certainly when it comes to dexamethasone, that appears to be a total game changer for people who are hospitalized and hypoxic and remdesivir seems to help as well. But I'm hoping our next game changer isn't too far off. And I think that will be in the form of a, of a vaccine, but we'll have to see. Yes, uh, I mean, you're right. The rate at which things have developed, uh, the amount of information, it's a dramatic, underlying dramatic difference from the 1980s because it, it really, it evolved over a period of time. And I mean, in the course of that time, there was human suffering and eventually there was great relief that there was more effective treatment. And we can only hope that the COVID-19 story is one that as you say about a couple of the drugs that you mentioned, that it's really, it's having its impact right now. And, and that's what is really needed. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I, I should probably note up front that the other, I guess, big game changer is that at least we know that the lockdown approach works in terms of controlling the virus. Is this sustainable? Absolutely not. Has there been collateral damage? 100%. I'm seeing this now in the inpatient wards, whereas back in April, we're seeing patients with COVID-19 
And now we're starting to see people who were indirectly affected by COVID-19, whether that be worsening mental health issues, missed appointments, missed medications, etc. So, you know, of course, the public health measures that we've learned that are effective are effective, but not sustainable. Yeah. So, I mean, your comments illustrate what the impact has been on healthcare delivery and sort of the secondary effects, or maybe there's a better word than that, but really the implications of this significant pandemic problem. I mean, it, it's about COVID-19, but it's about other effects that the disease can have and, and the, the, the effects on individuals, that's for sure. I agree. All right, Dad. Well, I think we're probably well past time, but that's okay. Hopefully the listeners will like a a longer format. But if not, we get counts even if they just start listening, although really the numbers don't matter. Um, Any sort of final parting words? Uh, Obviously, you're now new to Twitter, so you've seen the good side of Twitter, but also the the bad side. There's a lot of toxicity and negativity. Uh, So any parting words for our, you know, maybe uh, a folks on Twitter that also listen to the show? Oh, sure. I mean, it's all about learning. And yeah, I I think I look to Twitter for its positive effect. Uh, And I, you know, I think it's so important that we are always respectful to one another. You know, people can have very strong opinions and yet respect for the individual. And, you know, you, you don't necessarily know what another person is going through, dealing with and doing their their job to do what they can about COVID-19. So I think that's one aspect. But, you know, believe me, I mean, the the value of Twitter for the information dissemination, uh, that's, uh, that's pretty powerful. And as for me, this is still a, it's that transition year, Mike. So it's a sort of a moving forward and taking it a little easier. So... Right, right. And so you probably won't be the person sort of in all caps on Twitter pointing fingers at people or even shaming them for what they're doing from a public health standpoint. I don't think that'll be you. No, it it certainly won't be me, nor would it be me to to comment on the kind of uh, clinical care, the excellent work that clinicians are doing. And, you know, it's a learning experience uh, all around. For sure. And I like the positivity 100%. And so anyway, maybe we'll wrap this up here. Thanks so much, Dad, for joining me on the show and uh, for all the work that you're doing. Oh, well, I'm so happy to be part of the show, Mike, and uh, thank you for everything that you're doing. So uh, all the best. All right. Thanks. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores. Also thanks to founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.